What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. This week, we have the brilliant and hilarious Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and the indomitable and magnificent Lindsay Gibbs, the sports writer at Think Progress in D.C. And I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in WGSS at Penn State and newest resident of Wakanda. Welcome, guys. <laughs> Welcome. Good morning. <laughs> well, I want to take this time before we start to remind our flamethrowers out there about our Patreon campaign. You can pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 or as high as you want, to become official Patreon of the podcast. And in exchange for your contribution, you get access to special rewards. So right now, for instance, you get extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, an opportunity to record on the burn pile. And right now, we're serving up special Olympic content over there, reactions, extended interviews. Interviews, and we even have a special giveaway coming up. So jump on over to patreon.com slash burn it all down. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash burn it all down to unlock more flaming hot content today. All right, guys, this week, Brenda's going to chat with Dr. Amy Bass, historian, author, and longtime Olympic contributor about the Winter Games. Then we're going to wade into the complicated waters of Sports Illustrated's most recent swimsuit issue. And lastly, Shireen brings us an amazing an important roundtable discussion on Pride House Pyeongchang and the curation of safe spaces for LGBTQ athletes at these Olympics and beyond. And of course, we will highlight some badass women of the week and burn some things that need to be burned. But before we get started, do any of you guys have thoughts on, let's say, figure skating? <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> Thank you for asking, Amira. I really appreciate it. Okay, I am still devastated for Nathan Chen and that short program. If anyone was mm. listening to us two weeks ago, I said the only thing I wanted for the Olympics was for everyone to land all of their jumps and be happy. That did not happen. However, I am also still in tears of pride over his long program. Did anyone see that? Did you guys see that? Oh, yeah. More the than six once. six quads? Yes. Well, oh, five. God, five, so right? Good. Five were landed clean. Right. But he attempted six right. quads. Because yeah. I think if he mm-hmm. would have yeah. gotten six, wouldn't he have gotten the bronze? I mean, I was like on the edge of my seat saying like, what did that? Is it possible? Oh, it was. It was. It was possible. Other ones had to skate very, very well. And oh my gosh, Yuzuru, is he not the most precious thing? Okay, I went through a really big like rabbit hole of like Twitter accounts dedicated solely to (laughs) Yuzuru Hanyu. (laughs) And he, there's so many wonderful gifts and moments that these like stan accounts like capture. And pretty much all I want to do is just retweet those all day. Because he and Javier. I saw one of those. Yeah, the Javier Fernandez is 
was like his best friend, the Spanish uh, skater who got the bronze. And then the silver medalist is, you know, another Japanese skater who like, has been like there are all these photos where like Yuzuru's in his teens and this kid is in his like is like eight right so you can just see them through the years <laughs> sorry that's been my happy place this week there's one where he's <laughs> reacting I forgot who the skater was he's reacting to like he's worried <laughs> that he's not going to land the jump and it's like a progression of his face like being so concerned it, it was it was so adorable it's Javier Fernandez exactly who about. he trains with oh is that yeah, one yeah, okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> well part of it too is that the technical level has gotten to this point where they're attempting such you know, real, really big feats. And that's leading to more falls. You know, I mean, that's why Adam Rapon took the quad out of his program so that he could land everything cleanly. And so watching it has become a whole kind of like heart-wrenching exercise. Right, exactly. The other thing that I was watching last night that along the same lines was uh, the, like, I don't even know what it's called other than like X Games speed skating when they're like jumping with skis. What is it oh, called? Oh, the slope style, free skis. The Slope style. That also. (laughs) Half the time there's... (laughs) I don't know what it's called. Half the time they're skiing backwards before their next jump. And at one point, the person, his ski got stuck on the first jump. So he skied backwards into the ramp and then fell over. And it was the strangest thing I've seen. But it also reminded me of how effortless they make like even really hard things look. Like skiing backwards and jumping off of a ski jump. I've only skied backwards on accident. Like, I'm so bad that I get <laughs> turned around. Like, I get turned around and then I'm like, shit, I'm going backwards. So, well, maybe that's what they're doing too. Maybe it's all an accident. <laughs> no, they even landed backwards. <laughs> oh, I know. No, I'm just I kidding. Like, no, oh they're incredible. God. They're incredible. And of course, Gus Kenworthy casually kissing his boyfriend with while pride flags waved. What a lovely moment in slope style. Brenda got to chat with Dr. Amy Bass for a behind-the-scenes look at how they get all that Olympic content to our screen. Brenda? I'm thrilled to have Dr. Amy Bass on our show today. She directs the Honors Program and is Professor of History at the College of New Rochelle. She's worked as Senior Research Supervisor for NBC Olympic Sports since 1996 and she's previously authored books on race and sports, including Not the Triumph, But the Struggle, the 1968 Olympic Games and the Making of the Black Athlete. And we're very excited and awaiting her new book called One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It comes out February 27th from Hachette Press. Today, we're going to talk to the good doctor, a little bit about Olympic coverage. So Amy, Because we're recording this in the midst of the PyeongChang Games, I have to ask you, what do you think about the coverage so far? You know, I, because being a recovering Olympic addict workaholic, because of my years with NBC, I tend to watch live stream, which we live in this amazing moment to be a crazy Olympic fan in that we can stream everything in real time, right? And the NBC platform online is incredible. You, I logged in this morning at breakfast and watched women's luge as it was happening. It will be repackaged, I assume, for primetime broadcast tonight. But I'm watching everything live because I can. I'm getting nothing else done. Don't tell anybody that because I do have a job. But uh, you can watch everything. It's an amazing moment to be an Olympic fan. 
<laughs> but I do, I, I do take it that you probably watched opening ceremonies. Well, so I watched it in two different ways. My husband is there because he is with NBC. It's where we met. We met in Australia in 2000, which is why the Australian national anthem was played at our wedding. And so I watched it via FaceTime on Korean television. So he is that awesome a partner and he FaceTimed me and I got to watch it and I knew who lit the cauldron and I wept openly because I adore her. So to see Queen Yuna light the cauldron was an amazing moment. And then I sort of watched it in bits and pieces, I have to say, in terms of of the coverage that evening because it was the next day already in Pyeongchang and there was stuff going on. What did you think? I mean, I know there was that spoof about, you know, maybe the relationship between Korea and Japan. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, is that kind of impossible to avoid when it's a ceremony that's going through, you know, so many different countries? I am someone who has been on the ground floor working on that giant binder that gets put in front of talent for opening ceremony. It is a colossal project. This is this is no excuses. And then there's there's ad lib and and sort of opinion. And so you had a news analyst there who said something that was super unfortunate about the Japanese occupation of Korea. I think that I, I admire NBC's fast response to that, direct response to that upfront apology about those comments. And I think that overall, an, an opening ceremony is an impossible task. I mean, it's a thankless task. For me, the most important part of opening is the Parade of Nations is to get to see athletes. I was super excited. I'm a Bates College alum. The, you know, the Cypriot Alpine skier is a Bates student right now and the giant shout out to the Bobcats. That's the kind of little tiny moment, right? I'm there cheering on Cyprus because I have that mm-hmm. connection to it. But, you know, I also think it's an opportunity for all of us to put our own lens on, right? We don't necessarily need the lens of what we're being told as much as, you know, you're watching the box of dignitaries. You're watching the vice president of the United States sit while everyone else stands. You, you get to make your own sort of observations. And that was one of the interesting things about watching it via FaceTime on Korean television from my house in New York. We live in, you know, mad crazy times that I can do that is that I was sort of able to watch it. I don't speak Korean. And I had an unfiltered view to it to be able to to be able to see that. So I think that, you know, the opening ceremony is just this giant Petri dish of of figuring things out. And again, I have to say it is a thankless task to put that broadcast together. I bet it is. Well, speaking of sitting and standing, a lot of your work has to do with politics and protest and race. Instead of someone taking a knee in this event, we had Vice President Pence taking a butt. Um, (laughs) What did you what? What did you think? What was your reaction to that? I think that sport is a wonderful place to take a rare spotlight and use it to announce your politics to the world. So if those are Mike Pence's politics, then I'm glad he had that opportunity to showcase them, just as I'm glad Colin Kaepernick has his, and I'm glad Adam Rippon has his, and Gus Kenworthy, and anyone else. So I am so excited that Mike Pence is obviously going to be supportive of athletes doing the same exact thing moving forward. Have you ever seen a dignitary do that in the games before in all your years? Well, honestly, I... 
I don't pay that much attention to dignitaries. I'm watching athletes. <laughs> Who wants to watch dignitaries? So, you know, if I'm going to watch them because someone's going to take a picture of them, then fine. But no, I'm not watching dignitaries. I can say, you know, I've been on the infield of never of opening, but closing. And it's just the best party ever. So paying attention to anything other than that for me is no, I'm not watching dignitaries. <laughs> You're not watching that no. box. And and so so far, what what are your favorite? You got a favorite moment? I have to say, waking up early in the morning to watch a live stream of Chris Madzer winning a silver medal in Luge and making sure that everyone had the word men's in there when they were talking about it as a superlative feat for Americans was really just exactly the kind of thrilling, awesome, oh my gosh, is his third run going to be a good run? And watching Mirai Nagasu, not just, you know, it's funny, I was thinking this morning that I have watched her land the triple axel a lot. I keep watching it, but I have watched her visceral reaction of joy more than I've watched anything else on replay. Just that roar when she finishes and it was clean and she made history And she just expressed awesome, athletic awesomeness. And that whole team seems so joyous. Yeah, it's funny because you look at someone like Adam Ripon, who is such a charismatic skater, doesn't really have a lot of quad. He took his quad out of his long program last night to ensure that he could skate clean. And this is his medal, right? He gets to stand on podium and and take a medal. And this is his moment. You know, he's going to be in the men's individual. He he, he probably is not going to have the same experience in terms of, of standing on a podium. So this was his moment. This was Mariah Nagasu's moment. Although I have to say, I hope everyone's on red alert about Mariah Nagasu because I think she she indicated that that she's there to play. I, did you see Adam's interview after his skate? Yes. <laughs> where, he, <laughs> if, if I, where he says he, he'd like a yeah. Xanax. Well, like a, you know what else I loved about that interview is, you know, Mike Tirico is a, is a good, casual, comfortable, conversational interview. And, and this is our first Olympics with Mike Tirico in this seat. But the way Adam was like, Mike, 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 every time he called him by his first name and the in, inflection and intonation, it was just, it was so amazing. It wasn't, I'm just blessed to be here. I want to thank my family. And that's all fine. Athletes should be saying those things. But this was just Adam unfiltered. And it's, it's just a joyous thing to watch. He just seems like one of those perfect young professionals who's been told, you know, do this right. Remember who you're talking to. Address them by name. And the great thing (laughs) is he's not a kid, right? Adam has been around the block a lot. You know, this is he's one of the more seasoned and and he's an elder on this team. Yeah, he said it wasn't his first rodeo. Yeah. Which was, in fact, another one of his amazing really, quips. So, I mean, the whole games have been really wittier for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you look at Gus Kenworthy's Instagram, and if you're not following Gus Kenworthy's Instagram, you should yeah. be. You know, it was something to the effect of, you know, daddy is so proud. <laughs> There's some good Instagram, Twitter games really out there. These Olympics have been really, really fascinating for that. It's worth a whole kind of recap at the end. So last question on Olympics. What are you looking forward to? I am really, you know, and this is funny. This happened to me in Rio with Michael Phelps. I was a long time. Yes, he's he's really good. But I hate the word greatest because, you know, swimmers pile up medals in ways that say discus throwers can't. And then, you know, Rio, I said, all right, he, he is. 
And Lindsay Vaughn, I have to say, is something I am so looking forward to. I think that she represents something in these games that that we just haven't seen in a lot of ways. You know, she was politically overt leading into these games. She took a ton of backlash for her statements about Trump and representing America and what that means. Um, you know, she tweaked her back in January and there were a whole bunch of people saying, oh, well, that's because you dissed the president. You know, maybe you'll God. break it next time. And, you know, she's just, she, you know, she marched in opening and, and, you know, a lot of athletes don't march in opening, especially when it's that cold, because it's just not good for your athletic program. But I really, I love the fact that superstars like Lindsey Vaughn and Sean White are back in such a different context than where they began. And I think that being able to watch the long arc of an athlete's career is an amazing thing. So that's something I'm super interested in. I love women's hockey. I love that these games, and I give NBC a lot of mileage on this, that Canada versus the United States hockey is considered the rivalry of these games. You know, women's sports front and center in terms of how we talk about rivalries. And I love what's, you know, short, I have to say short track is my guilty pleasure. I think short track is just this mad, crazy thing that we all get to watch every four years. I'm addicted to it. I've been to it. It's the nuttiest venue there is at, at a winter games. And I'm obsessed. I'm actually just terrified. <laughs> I just, I, I watch it just through my fingers, just through thing in the mass start with bodies flying. And I'm just like, Oh my God, how are they doing this? Don't do this. It's too fast. I know, but you know, it's, it's, um, so, you, you look ooh, at, it's adrenaline. You look at, first of all, you look at South Korea's you know, success in something like short track, you think yeah. they're host yeah. and this is their gig. Right. And then you look back and the first time I ever saw short track was in Salt Lake in 2002. And I was sitting there when Stephen Bradbury from Australia won the gold medal for Australia inexplicably because he was literally the only guy who didn't fall down. He stepped over carnage and he was so far behind, right? He was so slow. Everybody else fell. He stepped over the carnage and won a gold medal. And I just thought, like, this is the greatest sport I've ever seen. It is amazing. All right. This week, Sports Illustrated released yet another swimsuit issue, as they do every year. This one featured many athletes. And just, I know for us, inspired uh, a very complicated discussion. And we want to kind of wade into that now. So Lindsay, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Got a lot of, as uh, Amira said, complicated thoughts about this. And I'm kind of excited to work through that. But let's just set the stage that, you know, it's that time of year again, when in a rare moment, women grace the pages and the cover of the most prominent sports magazine. But of course, this is for the Sw Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. This is been heralded as the first swimsuit edition of the hashtag me too era and according to vanity fair this year quote the team behind the media institution set out to make a magazine where models were as much participants as objects just let that soak in for a minute. Okay. Mm. So there were there were five athletes who were really heavily featured in this issue. You had Sloane Stevens and Jeannie Bouchard, who are, of course, the tennis players. You had Allie Raisman, the gymnast. And then you had Brenna Huckabee, who is a um, 
Paralympic snowboarder. So that was kind of interesting. To, it was, she was the first Paralympic athlete to be included. She has an amputated leg. And so she was the first Paralympic athlete to be included in the SI swimsuit edition. And also you had Paige Spiranak. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but she is the golfer who is best known not for L- even per starts on the LPGA tour because there haven't been that many, but for her Instagram following that she's really garnered, which she has like 1.3 million followers on Instagram. But but one of the things they did this year was to try and get this message across that you don't, you know, have to be modest to be respected, which is something that we here at Burn It All Down are, you know, that's a great, that is true. Like, <laughs> very much believe that, right? But one of the things they did was they had a lot of photo shoots that didn't include any swimsuits at all and instead had these models and then some of the athletes so completely nude, but then with words painted on their body. For example, Allie Raceman had, you know, trust yourself and live for you. Abuse is never okay. Women do not have to be modest to be respected. You know, that was written written on her body. You also had Robin Lawley, who is an older model, who had nurturer, mother, creative, human, you know, written over her naked body. And it was the point of this was to be like in her own words. So it was supposed to look at, you know, what's empowering to these women. But it's it's tough because for me, this is complicated because it's still all in a magazine that was intended for the male gaze and that has always used women's bodies as a selling point. So... It's. I hope that all these women were empowered, and they do seem like they were empowered. But is this the best way for the empowerment to happen? And where does this take the conversation? Amira? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I was looking for posters for my office this week, and I was looking for women athletes. And so I went to Amazon, as I do for everything in my life. And I like put in women athlete posters and legitimately the first five pages were pictures from ESPN's body issue of women athletes blown up and decontextualized from the issue. So if you're not familiar, the ESPN body issue features a wide variety of athletes of shapes, sizes, colors, men, women. And it's a celebration of a body and athletic bodies removed from that context and to have the only posters returning for women athletes being when they don't have clothes on was jarring to me. And I think it was through that lens that I first encountered this this SI issue that I immediately thought about, well, what happens when these photos are removed from the context when empowerment for one can also mean objectification, you know, for everybody else who's passing the magazine around or going to take the pictures and then make a poster print and sell it on Amazon. And that becomes your your kind of go-to image of of your athletic body. And, and that, that sits with me in a very troubling way. And then I guess the other part of me thinks about objectification and how perhaps the conversation we have about the objectification of athletes and and bodies happens certainly in a gendered context, but does that at times obscure the way that we, I mean, even a few weeks ago, we were sitting here ogling about Pita, you know, Tuatufua's oily flag-bearing body. And I think about those kind of casual ways that 
I also participate in objectifying male athletes and which doesn't necessarily have a a system or avenue, right, uh, institutional support behind it. We're not necessarily getting the swimsuit issue like that. So there are kind of degrees of difference, but it has me thinking kind of very deeply about what it means to objectify athletes in particular. Brenda? Yeah, I think it's so interesting what you said about taking it out of the context. So on the one hand... You have you have this process by which they don't get to control what happens to that image. So it's empowering for them. And I agree with Lindsay. I hope it is empowering for them. But but we're talking about images that go beyond. They're not authors and owners of those images going forward. They're owners of their bodies. Right. But part of it, too, is the is the context, which is that Sports Illustrated only features about four percent. Well, four percent of its covers are women. And there was a study that was done recently in the International Journal of Sports Sociology that showed, demonstrated that there were actually more women on Sports Illustrated covers between 1954 and 1965 than there was from 2000 to to today. And so this isn't something that's improved at all. And I think it would be very different if women athletes had a lot more coverage in that magazine. I would wager that the almost the 4% and change of women in Sports Illustrated would be cut in half if it wasn't for the swimsuit issue. Well, I think that mm. was not including the swimsuit issue, maybe. I, don't I know, think the study but, um, does include usually, okay. it. I think it does. Okay. And, and in <clears> fact, though, if Sports Illustrated, I mean, who's the audience for this? One of the things is that in the subscription to Sports Illustrated, you can even opt out of the swimsuit issue. So it's like it, it's like they know very well that they're trying to hit a particular demographic. And in their marketing packages, they brag that this is the white male market between 18 and 35, that they'll hit more people from the Super Bowl. So I don't care who the creative team is. The, the economic structural model there is exactly what we think it is. You know, it's about exploiting women and and their bodies and they have the right to, to participate in that. And it's not just one like one layered it's not you know so simple as that but i do think if we step back the business model is is very simple yeah you know it got me thinking historically you know i so those those covers that you mentioned for instance in the 50s and 60s that's right around the time that i'm researching and my women are appearing on some of these covers but also in newspapers in black newspapers in ebony and jet and i find it a really interesting discussion because one of the things that I see then a lot is uh, the framing of these magazines, especially in, in Jet and Ebony, wanting to overemphasize femininity, right? And demonstrate that one could be female and athletic and that those two things could coincide and to kind of push back on the notion that athletics made you manly or that, and they really had to play up this kind of heterosexual inclination as well at the time. And so there's a lot of photo shoots that say like baseball player, Tony Stone took where they insisted either she was wearing a dress. There's one picture of her topless laying down on a table while her husband is giving her a massage and they make sure to caption, you know, she's getting a massage from her husband after the game. There's all this kind of curation of image. And 
you know, part of it was strategic. This is for the Olympians. This is around the time where sex testing was uh, happening, which was a really invasive test at the time. And particularly black women were more susceptible to these kind of invasive testing procedures and scrutiny about their femininity. But it also makes me think that there's a lot of parallels in terms of image and, and presentation that that seem to be trying to still push back on this idea that somehow you can't be athlete and a woman or, or what that means, right? Is you still are kind of being a spectacle or defying the odds if you are uh, a woman who's an athlete and still, you know, wants to wear makeup or show off your body or whatnot. And that kind of historical continuum, I think, you know, is is a bit disheartening that that it's still happening. And it's interesting to me to document those, that change over time. Lindsay? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that concerns me, I think, the most about this is that I feel like we're still setting up the gold standard for women is still being viewed by men as sexy, you know? And that's what, you know, and, and I don't don't know if that's if that's true, but I think that's my concern is that that's the message we're still like sending, you know, and, and that that's where I think I get stuck on this, right? Because, you know, I want all these women to feel empowered and beautiful. And from I look, I follow a lot of models on social media, and who've done the and athletes who've done the SI swimsuit issue. And they all say great things about MJ Day, who is the editor, full time editor of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. And she does really seem to care about her models and, you know, create a really supportive environment. And, you know, they all just love her. And that's, that's great. Like that they're, they're finding this empowerment. I'll read from that Vanity Fair piece again that, you know, MJ Day runs the swimsuit edition like a den mother. She pays attention to the comfort and emotions and comfort levels of her employees. MJ Day says, quote, this is a safe space. MJ Day says, but she then goes on, MJ, in this interview to talk about, how they're trying to really showcase a variety of images of beauty, you know? So she says, we are, why are we only saying to ourselves that there's one type of person who is worthy of being celebrated? It's bullshit and we all know it and we live it. And yet it, yet it's continued to be propagated in the media. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes. I agree with that quote very much. But look, if you look at the SI swimsuit, it is a very narrow standard deviation of what is beauty, right? Like Sloane Stevens might be slightly more muscular, but Sloane Stevens is like one of the most gorgeous women in the world, right? Like there's no doubt about the fact that like Sloane Stevens is stunningly gorgeous by pretty much all standards, right? And so, you know, same with like Jeannie Bouchard, you know, and these other athletes are giving. So I think that's like where I really get kind of caught up is the fact that we're still like, I understand that for a swimsuit issue, like putting people of color in there and putting women who are a size 10 instead of a size two, that these are supposed to be like hugely radical acts. But all of these people still fit into a very narrow standard of beauty, you know, and that's, so how far can you take that empowerment, right? Like SI is still very much like reinforcing these standards of beauty that we have. Yeah. Well, I always ask myself, 
I mean, exactly what Lindsay sort of just ended on, which is how far does that empowerment go? But who is this empowering besides? If if it's them, great. But like how many girls are looking at the SI cover and being like, I feel so empowered? I mean, I'm sorry to say, but this does absolutely nothing for the for the larger structure of sexism that exists and the fact that they're like trouncing around on Caribbean islands has a real gross thing for me. You know, I mean Puerto Rico doesn't have power, you know, but it's so hot and sexy to roll around on a beach that could be whatever Caribbean island, right? So there's also a whole context to, you know, where both a very narrow standard of beauty All of the bathing suits are like typical of kind of pornographic, right? Featuring and covering certain sort of styles. Very minimalistic. (laughs) But also very traditional, right? I mean, they're not featuring the muscles. They're actually not. I mean, the muscles are part of those women's bodies and they come along with it. But it's all about like the peekaboo, you know, genital breasts, peep shots, you know, and and women occasionally like licking their fingers, you know, or looking like they like accidentally, you know, are just waiting for some man to come on to that beach. And so anyway, I just I, I can't imagine a girl seeing it and being like, thank you so much for doing that. It's really cleared stuff up. But I think that there are girls who see that because there are girls. I mean, we, we're still sending the message to girls that they need to be seen as sexy, right? And like that that is the holy grail. So in that note, I think we that it is empowering to girls. I'm just not sure if it's empowering to girls in the right way, you know? Like, I think that there are actually tons of, of younger girls who see this. Maybe not you or I, but like who do see this and say like, yes, oh my gosh, like this is great, you know, because she can still be sexy and, you know, I want to be sexy. And that's what concerns me. I mean, look, I follow all these athletes. And whenever these athletes are in SI, like, and they post their photos on Instagram, they're, those are the most, those are the most liked they get. And they are, they, they repost them and repost them. You know, Caroline Wozniacki, who is, you know, phenomenal athlete and love her so much. And she posts her SI swimsuit, you know, outtakes, you know, I mean, at least once a month, I feel like, you know, same with Jeannie Bouchard, you know, they keep bringing up these images and they keep wanting to be validated that way. And they keep showing that it's important to be validated that way. And I don't begrudge them at all. I just worry that like, I I worry, why do they feel so proud of that? Right? Like, why is that such a big thing to them? I think is where I get stuck. It's so interesting because I, I really like ESPN's body issue. This is why, to me, it brings me back to the context and where I think I think the kind of way that the layouts work in ESPN's body issue and the kind of celebration of athleticism is, I don't know, it's just like that, like I don't have the same reaction and I don't know why, like I'm still kind of working through these things. I think, you know. Well, they're posed, they're like, posed entirely differently. They're They're not laying down on a beach waiting for someone to take a picture of them or have sex with them, which these women in SI clearly are. 
And and so the mm. pose is absolutely central, whereas the ESPN body issue, they're like running and leaping and jumping and flexing. Right. They're celebrating the athletic. What, what SI is doing is conforming these athletic or women of color bodies to still fit the standard poses and standard definition of sexy. Whereas I feel like ESPN is more, we are going to find what's sexy about your, you know, or what's attractive about your specific body and cater to that. Raisman has been very, of course, you know, this is all happening for her right after she's come out about being abused by Nasser, and she's been such a great advocate for women and for survivors in that. And, you know, she did tell, I think, People Magazine that she's had people telling her, I don't understand how you you can complain that you were molested because you participate in Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Magazine. So I just want to say, like, that is fucking disgusting. And by sitting here and sorting through our comfort level with this and what it all means and the context, we want to in no way, like shame these women or say that they are anything but wonderful women. This week, Shireen chatted with representatives from Pride House International and the Korean Sexual Minority Culture and Rights Center to talk about Pride House Pyeongchang. Check it out. I am so excited for today's interview on Burn It All Down. We've got Kef Sennett, who is a writer activist, and a trustee at Pride House International. Candy Yun is an activist specializing in international solidarity projects with the Korean Sexual Minority Culture and Rights Center, KSCRC. And Min Woo Jung is also with the Pyeongchang Pride House, and his role today will primarily be to support Candy as a translator. Thank you so much, all three of you, for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thank Thank you for inviting us. So first question is for Kef. Kef, can you please sort of explain to our listeners who might not know what Pride House is and why it's so important that it's the first one in the region in Pyeongchang? The Pride House concept is based uh, quite closely on the National Olympic House concept, which essentially creates a safe space for, has traditionally created a safe space for people who are aligned by nation. So, for example, Germany House or Canada House. And in 2010, Dean Nelson, who is a LGBT activist in Vancouver, BC and Whistler, came up with the concept to create a safe space for LGBTQ plus fans, athletes and allies. And the idea took off right away. He worked with local community groups also some local businesses, to create a space both in Whistler and Vancouver, and people really enjoyed kind of tweaking that National Olympic House idea to make it a bit more aligned around sexual minority and gender identity politics. And since that first one in 2010, past eight years, we've had 12 others. They have been international, and that difference large-scale sporting events. That's sort of, that's our, that's our jam, that's what we look to do. And so that's included the Women's World Cup and the World Cup. It's included uh, the Pan, pair of Pan American Games, Commonwealth Games, the uh, European Football Championships, and of course the Olympics. The first one was at the Olympics. There was also Pride House at the London Olympics in 2012 and at Rio in 2016. And we tried to have Pride House in Sochi in 2014, but we were denied. 
So alternately, we had remote pride house pride houses internationally, which were sort of events and activism internationally in support with Russian LGBT people. So remained very political. Obviously, we've campaigned with to the IOC asking for for better protections. There's been uh, certainly attention paid to who which places get chosen as the locations for these these huge events. And so with the KSCRC coming to us in 2015 and saying, you know, we, we want to do something around this idea in Pyeongchang, I mean, it was terrific. It was, it was bringing that idea into a, a part of the world where it hadn't existed before. Candy, what does this mean for the athletes and for the region in South Korea? And I know you're speaking to me from Kangung. And what does this mean f- for the area and for the communities, the LGBTIQ communities there? So I'll translate. 그이 지역과 이 공동 이 여기 있는 커뮤니티 사람들 특히 LGBT 사람들에게 이 프라이더스 평창이 개최된 게 어떤 의미인지. Actually, this city Gangneung is quite small. It's really hard to find any community. So the Pride House is being done only for the people in this city, but also I influence that it is back all around Korea, I hope. Yeah, that's very, very important. And what candy are you hoping comes after the Olympics, after the games in Pyeongchang are finished? What happens then? What are you hoping happens? There's not many awareness about sports and sports with LGBT people in Korea. So after the Olympic and the Pride House, the awareness is by then people realize we the LGBT, LGBTI plus people play sports together in their daily life. So you're hoping that it continues the fusion of sports and awareness. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Kef, just to, what's the response been from the athletes at the games for Pride House? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there was a, a lot of planning around the, the part of Pride House Pyeongchang that is a Canada house happened very last minute and is still sort of happening on the go. And of course, a lot of the athletes right now are, um, competing. So I've heard anecdotally that people are interested and, you know, want to come and check it out. But the timing is a little bit awkward because their sports are their, are their first priority at, at the minute. So how far are you from where the athletes village is? Oh, we're right adjacent to it in terms of the Canada Olympic house part of Pride House Pyeongchen. But it's, it's important to note that that's really only one aspect of what's happening here. It's the only piece of Pride House Pyeongchang that's in the Olympic arena, but KSCRC is also offering a viewing party in Seoul later this week and then some other actions throughout the rest of the, of the games in Seoul. And also, Candy will likely be coming back this week to, to work with me in the Canada Olympic House to hand out some information and, and make people a bit more aware about the status or lack thereof of LGBT people in Korea. So this question is for anyone, and men 
please feel free to jump in as well. Yes. What would be the best result of success? Like, how would you measure success from Pride House? Like, what would you love to see happen? Is it attendance? Is it awareness? Is it moving forward in collaborations with other communities? Like, what what would be the best result, Pride House, Pyeongchang? From the perspective, I'll go first. I, I definitely want uh, Candy and Min also to speak on this. But from a Pride House international perspective, I think simply seeing the plans come to fruition and learning from how things work and don't work and raising awareness, I mean, particularly for, for Korea, it, that has been a huge issue. That's been a, something that the media, local media have asked a lot. Is like, you know, what do you want about? What's the, what, what is even the issue? What, why, why is this even a problem? So from a Pride House international perspective, I think success looks like these, these teams getting to, to raise their own issues and speak on their own behalf. And with that, I'm going to ask them to speak on their own behalf to answer your question. I'll just represent Pride House Pyeongchang here. So as part of the team, we expect that the best possible result for us would be the increasing awareness, diversity, and inclusion in the, in the sports, especially in the local context where not very few um, LGBT people, not to mention athletes, can openly come out and live their lives as who they are, right? So, for example, we have been dealing with this issue of use of the public space for LGBTQ-related events. So last year, a group uh, called Queer Women's Association tried to hold a sports event, sporting event for themselves. But then the public institutions denied access to this group. So we're hoping that the success of the Pride House Pyeongchang will lead a way to use these kind of public spaces for the queer people who's interested in sports and human rights. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. Yes. Candy, do you hope that this project inspires other countries in Asia and East Asia, South Asia to do what you've done? Of course. I know we have also Asian game maybe soon and we have a Beijing Winter Olympic and the 2010 we have a Tokyo Summer Olympic. We have a lot of events in through the Asia. So after the Pride House, I hope another whole Asian companies do the, their own Pride House. Yeah, I hope so too. And that we yeah, to get the awareness. I think that's so important. And I want to thank you all just for for coming on the program today to, to explain this to us. This is a really important story for, you know, this Pride House Pyeongchang to be the first in its region. And I wish you all the success in the world. And thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, ladies, it's time to burn some stuff. What do you have for me this week, Brenda? I have the shit show that is college football, Amira. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I mean, with all that's happening with the Olympics, with it not being, you know, football season, it's not getting a ton of attention, but I would like to shine a little bit of light and throw some fire on what's happening at University of New Mexico. So I don't know if you've seen, but the head football coach, Bob Davey, has been suspended for 30 days. The allegations include, and this is from the school's Office of Equal Opportunity, and there's another law firm investigating him, 
many, many witnesses to Davy using the N-word, making derogatory remarks to four black players sitting on a golf course saying, what are you doing on a white man's tractor? It, it also encouraging players to, quote unquote, find dirt on a woman who had accused one of the players of sexual assault. Oh, oh, it's whew. And, you know, Davey's no Nick Saban, but he's in a contract that runs through 2021 and pays him 822000 without any bonuses and over a million dollars with bonuses and incentives each year. Again, not Nick Saban, but it's still about 13, 14 professor salaries at University of New Mexico. And this athletics program is $5 million in debt to the university. And the president said, you know, we should probably just forget it. Uh, (laughs) We should probably just forgive this debt so that the program can go forward. Oh, yeah. So, so, you know, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, why wouldn't you? I mean, just have the state of New Mexico, you know, historically non-wealthy, poor state with problems, you know, putting air conditioning in public schools in a place that's really freaking hot to continue to pay, you know, this racist, sexist man to coach a game where people run around and get concussions. So I would like to burn. I would like Mm. to really just burn the University of New Mexico's football program, gods that be, for uh, letting it get to this level. Yeah, burn that. Burn. Burn, burn, burn. Lindsay, what are you burning? Um, I like to burn Sean White, Mike Trico, and NBC. <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> in a collective. This week, Sean White had an incredible run in the half pipe to reclaim gold. And look, it was a thrilling competition and it was a great, you know, really entertaining to watch. But what NBC did not mention or bring up during its coverage of Sean White, of which was extensive because he's essentially their, you know, focus, their face of the games, especially this first week, was the really disturbing sexual harassment lawsuit that Sean White settled last year. Look, I'd like to very, very clearly say that I don't think that, you know, Sean White should be banned from the Olympics or, you know, that we shouldn't be able to enjoy this. But it was really, really bothersome to me, the fact that this wasn't even brought up. Because I, when you're doing a... They did one of those interviews with Mike Tirico and Sean White, and it was, you know, those soft-spoken, you know, glowing Olympic features, but that went into Sean White's, like, journey of self-discovery in the four years since Sochi. And they talked about some of his hard times. So that is the perfect opportunity to bring this up, to make him answer for this, right? And they didn't do it. And one of the reasons they might not have done that is because Mike Tirico, who was conducting this interview, who was hosting all the Olympics coverage, also has horrendous sexual harassment allegations against him dating back to the 1990s at ESPN. Now, he was suspended for three months without pay back in the 1990s. While he's never really talked publicly about it, there's that's supposed to have been, a you know, he suffered his consequences. But I can't help but feel that NBC felt that the optics of that, of Mike Tirico interviewing Sean White about sexual harassment would not be great. And de- therefore, they decided to just completely bury it. Now, that did not work out for them, thankfully, because of the time we're in, a lot of journalists did bring it up at his press conference after the game 
game after the run after he won his gold medal i don't know what terminology winter olympics uses and at that time sean white called it gossip he said i can't talk about this it's gossip now he went he went on pretty much an apology tour after that he went on he spoke to the new york times and the nbc's or today's show and gave much better answers at that point about you know look i really regret that i made this you know woman especially who i was friends with feel uncomfortable i regret my actions and I've changed. And honestly, like, was that so hard? If you had done that beforehand with NBC, that would have been good. Like, we, that, we could have moved on from there. I think people get caught in thinking we're asking for either extremes, right? We think they think that by us wanting these situations to be just brought up, that that means we want them like scorched at the earth and like never to be seen again. But most women I know are really happy to find a middle ground here where we can not ignore these things and that and just address them because that is part of dealing with this. So I would like to burn NBC and its attempt to shove this under the rug despite our current climate burn. Light that rug on fire. (laughs) So (laughs) this week I'm burning Laura Ingram and her terribleness. On Thursday, she responded to a video of LeBron James and Kevin Durant in which they criticized 45 and talked politics with Carrie Champion. And uh, she responded by telling them to shut up and dribble, adding, look, there might be a cautionary tale in LeBron for kids. This is what happens when you attempt to leave high school a year early to join the NBA, and it's always unwise to seek political advice from someone who gets paid $100 million a year to bounce a ball. LeBron James responded with his own hashtag, hashtag we will not shut up and dribble, saying I am more than an athlete. I'm just so, I just, uh, there's just, they've thrown out dog whistles. They just have bullhorns over on Fox News is actually quite ridiculous. I really enjoyed Chris Long's response. There's been a, a lot of athletes have come to LeBron's defense calling out how racist, you know, Laura Ingram was being and talking about uh, and clapping back at her. Chris Long did a really long thread of athletes and non politicians that were featured on her network whose opinions were praised. So I don't hear you telling Kurt Schilling, right, that he needs to shut up and swing a bat or whatever he needs to do, evade taxes and fail casinos or whatever (laughs) he does, because his politics align with yours, right? And so... Then, as this has continued to gone back and forth, she had the audacity to invite LeBron on her show to debate with her, which is like, what kind of mindset do you have to be in to say, hey, I'm just going to sit here and roast you for being dumb. You're too dumb to talk politics, but also come on my show and talk politics. Like, it, your logic doesn't make sense. I guess it makes sense if your logic's the racial logic, but it's just... it's <laughs> When it's racism, it makes perfect sense. Right, yeah. exactly. But it's just, it's really frustrating. What is heartening is to see the response in much of the athletic community, to see LeBron, who um, is at All-Star Weekend and said, you know what, whatever her name is, I'd like to thank her for giving me more of a spotlight because we have the eyes on the world on us right now. This only amplifies that. And it gives me an even bigger platform to talk about social inequality and racism and police brutality. And I appreciate that. He's, he's part of a long line of athletes who have tried to utilize that platform as 
as a driver in having these conversations, despite the best attempts of people always telling them to shut up and play or stick to sports or dribble a ball. So I am burning her comments. I am burning her audacity to then invite him on the show. And I am just burning it all down this kind of racist, exploitative system that wants to see athletes, particularly black athletes, just play for their entertainment and not listen to their words. So burn it. Burn. Okay, after all that burning, it's time to recognize some badass women of the week. We have Czech skier Esther Ledecka, who won a surprising gold medal in the Women's Super G this week. It was really exciting. Everybody had already started moving on to crown the champion, and then they had to cut back to the Super G (laughs) to watch her surprising run. And her face, when she crossed the line at the bottom, was literally like, what happened? What what is happening? Like, it took so long for it to register. It was a wonderful moment. So congrats to you. It was so good that she's going to be known more as a meme in like 20 years (laughs) for that run. Like, it was iconic. It was. I also want to recognize Brazilian coach Emily Lima, who has been treated like absolute garbage by the Brazilian Federation. Um, And she's now announced she has a new job coaching the Glory Santos team. So hurrah for you and, and congrats on your new job. And then Hannah Mouncey, who's a transgender handball player, who announced that she will be joining the Australian national team after beginning her career in the men's competition. So congrats to you, Hannah. And that that is a, a huge barrier that is being broken over there. And also Danica Patrick, who is running in her who is racing in her last NASCAR race this Sunday at the Daytona 500. Hats off to you, Danica. And drum roll, please. <laughs> We're really missing Shireen's inspired drum rolls of like. Does she do it on the desk or does she do it? I it's think like, so. so. Like Let me okay. try. Okay. Drum roll. Uh, bum, 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 uh, okay. bum. That's me. <laughs> to Mariah Nagasu, who was the first American woman to land a triple axel in the Olympic Games. She helped. Team USA, secure the team bronze and figure skating. And she's just an all-around badass after. Uh, she said, I'm still on cloud nine. And she also added that growing up, there weren't a lot of Asian Americans in sports. And there's a bit of a stigma that says Asian Americans are more the nerdy type. So for me to be part of this successful sports team that has so many Asian Americans on it and to represent that side of the United States means so much to me. So congrats, Mariah. You make us all very, 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 very very proud. Woo-hoo. Yay. Okay, what is good in your life this week? Brenda? What's good in my life is that yesterday I brought into my laundry room suitcases to pack for Argentina. So, <gasps> yeah, so I'm super excited to start my Fulbright there. And I've never taught in Argentina and I'm thrilled to be doing it. And so it feels very real all of a sudden, you know, putting stuff in there, putting the kids' socks, all that kind of stuff. So I'm psyched. <laughs> It's really happening. <laughs> and I'll be I'll be burn it all down from Argentina. So I'll be Ooh. I, I, yeah. Woo! Have you calculated the time? Like do you know I was just asking about this. This is so exciting. <laughs> We're international. Yeah, totally. We've got Toronto, we got top to bottom. We're so, you know, all of the Americas. 
All the Americas. Awesome. Lindsay, what's your what's good? Well, I got to see Amira this week, and that was exciting. We had margaritas, (laughs) and that was great. (laughs) Other than that, I'm just really enjoying the Olympics, despite all the bad things. And I do have to say, to bring my episode full circle, I just discovered, uh, not that I check Twitter while we're recording episodes, but I just discovered (laughs) the most wonderful gif of of Shoma Uno, who was a silver medalist at, in the men's skating, and he and uh, Yuzuru are doing an interview in a Japanese Olympic studio, and Shoma can't get onto the stool. <laughs> He literally just keeps getting on and falling off. Oh my goodness. He won the silver medal, and Yuzuru is just laughing so hard. So that made me really happy. That's what's good. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, what's good for me is I had, I just finished my crazy week across the country, but I did get to see Jess. I got to see Lindsay. I was just racking up selfies with co-hosts this week it was awesome um i also finally got to go to wakanda and see black panther and watching so many badass black women grace that grace that screen and it was just i can't even articulate the collective experience of watching this in energized theaters with a lot of people just celebrating this moment and it really was something very very good i also really enjoyed talking the political history of the winter games with jules boykoff and minky warden and Teresa runsettler both in new york and then the next day in american it was great thank you rosa luxembourg and american university for hosting us for both talks we had a wonderful turnout standing room only we got a blurb in the new york times uh, and we had a really necessary discussion about about politics and human rights and diversity or lack thereof at at the Winter Olympics. And it was great to see all those people, to see my cousin who came down to here, to see some friends of mine on Friday night. So even though I was traveling and tired and everywhere, seeing the people that I got to see made it all worth it. And that is my something good. Love it. Mm-hmm. So that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down is on SoundCloud, but also can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate, let us know what we did well, and give us critical feedback if you want to. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com, or check out our website website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll find previous episodes, transcripts, links, and a link to our Patreon. That's it for this week. From Brenda, Lindsay, and me, Amira Rose Davis, see you next week, flamethrowers. And I